talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie-by-movie and television series-by-television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're taking a look at Moon Knight, first seen in March 2022, when, if you wanted to look clever in front of your friends, you could have watched Human Resources, Life and Beth, or America's Got Talent Extreme instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I thought of Moon Knight shortly. Meanwhile, joining us to give his thoughts on Moon Knight is quiz expert David Smith. David, where can people find you? Hi, Tim. This is Stephen here, actually. You can find me shackled to a bed in a loft in North London. You can find David on most social media at, at DVD Smith. He's a nice bloke, bit of a funny accent, but yeah, that's all I've got to say. Uh, thanks for uh, thanks for having. <coughs> oh, sorry, Tim. I don't know what happened there. Uh, kind of blacked out for a second. How are you doing? Yeah, you can find me in all the usual places. Okay, so before we go any further, and provided it is actually you, David, what <laughs> happens in Moon Knight? This is the first of Marvel's Disney Plus series that's centered around an entire original character. They take us through the worlds of Egyptian gods for the first time and we follow a man named Stephen Grant who's an Englishman living in London who works in a museum gift shop who suddenly starts experiencing blackouts where he'll wake up hours or even days later in weird and unusual places and we actually find out that Stephen is a man named Mark Spector who has dissociative identity disorder and Stephen's actually an alternate personality of his. And then we find out, and this is where it gets really fun, Mark is the human avatar of Khonshu the Egyptian god of the moon. And Mark has the ability to turn into the magical being known as Moon Knight, who has healing powers and flight and super strength and all the usual superhero jazz. So the story revolves around Mark and his wife Layla trying to stop a man named Arthur Harrow, who is trying to revive the goddess Amit, who is the Egyptian god of, I think she's the god of basically hell personified or something like that. And they do a sort of minority report where they reap the souls of humanity and judge them based on actions that they have done in the past or have yet to do in the future. So they're trying to stop this man, Arthur Harrow, from unleashing hell upon the world, while also trying to let Mark come to terms with Stephen, his alternate personality, and have them sort of peacefully coexist. Okay, well, David, how much did you know about Moon Knight before you saw this show? Literally nothing at all. I think the only time I knew about... I first heard about Moon Knight when they commissioned it for Disney+, Plus, and then I heard yourself and a few other Marvelites on the web just all talking about it, going, oh my God, they're doing Moon Knight. I can't wait to see this. And I was just thinking, when I started reading up on it, I was thinking the concept just sounds mad. And I was fully prepared to come into this podcast when you invited me to do this episode, just spending the entire time just going, what the f*** was that? Just could not believe how they were going to make this work on screen. But they actually did. It actually, it, it made sense. It was fun. It was good. And it, it didn't sort of, it didn't seem up itself. It, it was really well done. The concept was really well done. And the character work was outstanding. I had a great time with it. Yeah. Well, that's exactly why I wanted you to do Moon Knight. Because, you know, I'm aware that, you know, you love the series, you love the films, that you don't really know much about the comics, but you like finding out about characters. And I was aware that people have been, because, you know, we're now in the 
situation where I mean I thought bringing in people like say Captain Marvel and Jessica Jones and Drax was you know like next level but they've really pushed through we're getting people like Monica Rambeau now but Moon Knight in particular I didn't expect but I was aware that as you say you will have seen people saying I really hope they do Moon Knight at some point to talk about him kind of hushed or tones without giving very much away and that's why I really really thought your take on it would be really interesting yeah it was more because I heard people talk about and I heard Kevin Feige say that when they announced it I said this is going to be the most brutal one yet it's going to be absolutely not like nothing you've ever seen before and if I'm honest there wasn't that much that was more brutal than what we've seen before you know when you compare it to sort of the blood on the Captain America shield and Falcon and Winter Soldier or stuff like that because most of the action suffers from the same thing as like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and all those other television shows where it has a television budget and so they don't have as much money to work with so they work, have to work creatively and one of the ways that they do that is they have Mark or Steven just sort of black out and wake up and suddenly all the action has happened off screen and you've just got all these people lying on the ground covered in blood as I say I was watching it as a casual viewer who hadn't seen Moon Knight before and was excited to see what he could do and I've seen the entire series twice now and if I'm honest for the first four or five episodes I was loving the characters I was loving the story I was a little disappointed at how little actual moon nighting there had been the first episode he literally appears for about five seconds at the end the second and third there's maybe a total of five minutes of fighting you get a very cool moment with Mr. Knight which is, apparently is a different version <laughs> so it was really funny and I was going into episode six thinking they'd better show some proper moon night because otherwise I feel we've been shortchanged on our moon night and they actually delivered I think the series finale episode six was the best finale we've had of all these TV shows just the amount of action was brilliant and when I saw it I could kind of see why because the concept of Moon Knight as far as I can tell is the backstory and the character itself the sort of dissociative identity that is the key feature because when you look at his powers he's got flight he's got super strength he's got healing powers he doesn't really do anything that we haven't seen before in a lot of other heroes in the MCU so I can kind of understand why they didn't make the hero himself the focus of it because you're just watching six episodes of a superhero do stuff that you've already seen before watching it a second time I really appreciated that they went more into the sort of the actual character rather than the hero himself but I think with the amount of action that they had at the end of it I think overall it was a really good series and I was I really hope that they bring more of it back yeah well that's interesting to bring that up because one thing that has really struck me about the reaction to it is that there has been the kind of perception that you know oh they finally done this is the series for clever people like me who get clever things when people do them <laughs> there was actually when it was first announced a press conference where somebody kind of more or less asked that you know like oh he tried to do something more intellectual now really and Kevin Feige got visibly irritated and said he's an action hero who jumps out of buildings yeah and I later found out that there was another interview where he'd said it'll be more Amblin Entertainment than Art House Cinema and Jeremy Slater the writer who I think we'll have more to say about in a minute said he actually consciously modelled it on Ghostbusters not Raiders of the Lost Ark which he thought would be too obvious because he thought that's the tone you know kind of action comedy with jump scares but people are still treating it as though oh I disregarded the silly films about the flying god of thunder with his hammer but this one is for me and uh, no keep that opinion to yourselves I think yeah people seem like they want to turn everything that Marvel makes into sort of the dark knight basically when they hear it they, they want this is going to be Marvel's gritty this is going to be Marvel's sort of dark and it's going to be brutal and it's going to be violent and it's going to put off all the Marvel fans that they've amassed over the past 12 years and yeah I mean there will be some I think later down the line there are going to be some R-rated stuff there's going to be Deadpool there's going to be Blade but this is still this is a TV show it's still got it's got to appeal to the fans especially when you're taking a risk on a new and relatively obscure 
character. You know, you've already got people on board with WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier. You've got them on board, Disney Plus and all this sort of format. Then you start bringing in people they've never seen before. You want to make sure that you retain that audience while also giving them something they've never seen before. And if you completely change it and turn it into Zack Snyder's Justice League, it's not going to be, it's going to be too much of a tonal shift. And the idea that, oh, they're finally, they're going to do something for smart people. That implies that the entire thing that they've done before has been for idiots. Like the entire Infinity Saga, the entire sort of, all the stuff that's come before, they're saying, oh, there's there's not been a hint of intelligence in that. And that's really condescending. And also, I don't think there's anything, as great as Moon Knight is, I don't think there's anything particularly special about it compared to the rest of them in terms of, you don't need to have a degree in Egyptology to be able to understand it. I mean, it probably would have helped because there were a lot of gods to keep track of in that scene in the pyramid. But other than that, I think it seemed, it was relatively accessible, yeah. Well, it reminded me of, ironically, a character that I half expected to turn up in this who didn't, sadly. The Netflix series of The Punisher, it seems to be quite heavily structurally influenced by it, even down to the bottle episode. What's interesting there is, you know, talking about the level of violence in it, they've really nailed this thing now because obviously in The Punisher and in things like Daredevil, you've got things like, you know, you've got people's heads being smashed into mirrors, you know, that sort of thing. But they've really perfected the thing of making you think you've seen things. You know, exactly what you were saying about Mark slash Stephen waking up after things have happened. I would liken it to... Actually, we didn't mention this when we talked about Black Widow. It only struck me later. You know, there is a scene where one of the widows punches her own face off and you think you've seen it, but you actually haven't. You know, there's a shot of her from above and the shot of Natasha and Yelena kneeling over her and you don't actually really see it. And I think that bodes well for the future that they'll be able to do these things, like you're saying, without really making it tremendously unsuitable or necessarily scaring or offending people. And I think that's to be applauded, really. Yeah, it's also, I mean, it is, it's a great way to save money. It's a great way to sort of imply the brutality, especially the brutality of Jake Lockley, which is a character that we're hopefully going to see more of the next time. The idea that, because you think when you see at the start and you see, particularly in episode one, where they're in that village in the Alps and Stephen blacks out and he wakes up and everyone is covered in blood and you think it's Mark. And then over the course of the next few episodes, you realise that Mark's not actually as violent as you initially think he is. And then you realise, particularly in episode three in Cairo, there's one scene where Mark blacks out and suddenly everyone is covered in blood and you realise, hang on, who's this third person? Because there's the idea that there's an actual, there is an actual monster in there and we don't see them at all and they're just planting that seed. There's a way of implying the actual violence without seeing it and without getting the rating that means that it's going to be unsuitable for viewers. Your point there <laughs> did remind me of the Black Widow hitting herself in the face because there's a the really funny moment where I think, is it Mark that punches Stephen in the face after he kisses Layla? And it's I think it's the first time on television that we've had a love triangle between two people <laughs> because yeah, I think Stephen kisses Mark's wife and then Mark just punches Stephen in the face. And just, oh, I just find that so funny. I actually think they'd be really clever because, I mean, the first allusion to Moon Knight in the MCU was way back in Captain America of the Winter Soldier where they hinted at one of the little scene personalities. But I think going for the English and the American one first, although they've very clearly cast Oscar Isaac because he has got that element of racial ambiguity to him. But I still think they were very wise to go for the English and the American personalities because, you know, Jake, obviously, who's Spanish, only comes in right at the end. I think they've avoided a lot of potential pitfalls and criticism that way when you're dealing with a new character. I think that's quite important. But what's really annoying me, the second way in which people reacting to it annoying me, is people are still going on about Stephen's accent. And it should have been quite <laughs> obvious in the first trailer. It was supposed to indicate all is not right. You know, it's not just somebody they've roped in off Britain's Got Talent or something. It's Oscar Isaac. I know. He would either do a proper accent or not do it. He's clearly doing it for a reason. It explains clearly in the show the fact that does Stephen even 
even really exist in any form. But people are still saying, OMG, loved it, apart from that accent. I mean, what, what, did you actually watch any of it? Yeah, and I think after hearing my accent at the beginning of this, they might have second thoughts. But yeah, Oscar Isaac is an incredible actor. And I could not, I mean, there was part of me in this. And I, I must confess that there were times where I was thinking, is he doing a really good London accent or is he doing a terrible London accent? My ear isn't very good at dealing between the two, if I'm honest. And then you get into the actual canon of it, which is he is an American doing an English accent. Even if it's not the best English accent, canonically, that's okay because he is fundamentally not English. He's doing an accent. And it, it kind of reminded me of, I remember hearing Sandy Toxvig talk about a story about how she just changed her accent one day because she was she used to have a New York accent and she was getting bullied at school for it. So she just one day decided to start talking in an English accent so that she'd fit in. And that's what reminded me of Mark and Stephen. He just switched one day and that was him as Stephen and just started talking like that. And it's not going to be perfect, but it's still, I mean, Oscar Isaac is just such a good actor. By the way, I think that's probably the first time ever that someone has compared Moon Knight to Sandy Toxvig. I'll guarantee you that. <laughs> But yeah, and the thing is that because Oscar Isaac, like Oscar Isaac, this shows me, this show has showed me so much how Oscar Isaac was wasted in Star Wars. Like absolutely wasted. He is such a great acting talent that in the fifth episode where they're in that sort of afterlife hospital and it actually is the two physical personalities as actual separate people. You don't think of it as Oscar Isaac, like the same person twice because he plays them so differently. Their mannerisms and just the way they look, the way they walk, even the way their hair is, it looks like two different people. And you see it as two different people. He's such a brilliant actor. And you've got to give props to Layla's actress as well, Mei Kalamawi, because there's a scene right in the finale where she starts channeling Tawaret, the goddess there, and just switching between the two voices and the two personalities, you know, channeling this god that's talking to her all in the same scene, in the same shot, without the camera panning away or anything like that. That is proper skill. And I was just, I was hugely impressed by both of them, particularly right at the end in the finale when Mark and Stephen are both coexisting in the same body. And in the same shot, you can see Oscar Isaac go from Mark to Stephen visibly and you can tell without the accent without anything you can just see it in his face whether he's Mark or Stephen and I just thought that was superb and not everyone is going to be able to pull that off as convincingly as he did so I think it was a superb choice to cast him in this role I think she was absolutely brilliant as well just the fact that when Layla becomes technically they call her Scarlet Scarab although she's more a fusion of Marlene or is it Marlena from Moonlight it's one of those things I've never been sure I mean, people have noticed that I refer to America Chavez as America which is yeah. you know, things like that I would say Damien rather than Damon Hellstrom that kind of thing and it's amazing how you get tripped up when you actually hear them defined in the official adaptation but anyway she doesn't play the character at all like a stereotypical female action hero it is more apparently she studied a lot of Middle Eastern cinema to get the right kind of strong attitude but with the different take on it not the way yeah. Hollywood characters are always presented and that really comes across there's a huge amount of Egyptian influence in this show. Like the amount of you've got Egyptian directors, writers, composers, and Maya herself is an Egyptian actress as well. So the amount of actual native Egyptian stuff in this that's not Hollywood at all is superb. Although I do have an issue with the Scarlet Scarab's outfit because I do wonder how long it'll be before Sam Wilson shows up with a cease and desist letter. <laughs> just watching it and thinking, this is just Egyptian falcon, come on. Because I was kind of thinking, like, she gets channeled by the goddess Tauret, who is this hippo god, the goddess of fertility and children 
and all this and apparently like in the egyptian mythology like tower it has nothing to do with balancing the scales or anything like that so i do wonder if maybe like in the pyramid we saw all these gods encased in stone if maybe there was some bigger story about the egyptian gods aren't doing what they're supposed to because someone is imprisoning them or something but when Layla gets sort of when she becomes the avatar of Tauret, Tauret is a hippo god why does Layla not transform into a giant hippo I want to see her in some kind of enormous getup like a big Barney the purple dinosaur or something you know this massive hippo outfit just stampeding through the streets of Cairo just trampling all the bad guys and no they had to decide to make her cool and sleek and golden and badass and all this stuff and give her wings and I was like no I want to see a big hippo god just bumbling down the street but yeah apparently because I thought she was an entirely I thought this is the MCU's first entirely original superhero because I couldn't see anything but yeah apparently the Scarlet Scarab is what they based her on which I think was a really cool thing there was a little line at the end where it felt a bit contrived there's a girl that says like are you an Egyptian superhero and she says I am and that did feel it felt a little bit contrived in the same way that sort of the female team up scene in Endgame kind of felt where it's like you know depending on how you look at it it's either really really cool and really representative and amazing but also at the same time there's part of you thinking it's a bit on the nose but you know it was still amazing to see and I really hope that she comes back because one of the dialogue scenes she says I'll be your avatar but only temporarily and I feel like if there is a series to have been like it'll be a shame if she doesn't come back in some form because yeah it was a really really cool character and it was great for her to have something to do besides just being the wife you know as so many female characters have been in these things before Those old bones can't hurt you. Well, at least now we know what happened to Pullman Talbot. Yes. And to anyone who chooses a path of greed. Does this mean the treasure has gone too? Oh, I think not. Do you notice anything unusual about that statue? The statue of Koya Schalke, lunar god of the Aztecs. No, but I'm just a lad trying to do my best. You're Dr. Stephen Grant. Maybe so, but you've got pluck. Now let's see what we can find on our friend here. Well, that's a good moment to bring in mention of... Well, actually, just before I get onto the director, I'll just say Jeremy Slater, the writer. I was surprised when I heard he was attached to this because the main thing he's known for is the 2015 non-Marvel Fantastic Four, which is yeah. literally <laughs> earlier today on Twitter, I'm sure you saw it, there was somebody trying to reclaim it as a misunderstood film and basically everyone was saying, <laughs> no, there's literally nothing about that. Leave it alone. But apparently, I didn't know this until recently, what ended up on screen bought almost 
almost no relation to his original script, and he was really yeah. quite angry about it, that he'd written something very much in line with the original comic books, trying to right the wrongs of the previous two Fantastic Four films, and it turned out like it did. But he did an excellent job, but Mohamed Diab, who directed it, apparently, I mean, he's quite well known in kind of art house circles for, you know, the kind of films that the sort of people that want to say, oh, I understand Moon Knight, like Cairo 678 and Clash and things like that. You know, were really good films, but they're not quite mainstream. He apparently, he had no idea that this was even a thing. He was just contacted by Marvel who said, would you be interested in directing this? And he was a bit sort of, what? But he saw it as an opportunity to depict Egypt on screen as a modern city, to quote him, for better and for worse. You know, so showing it's not brilliant, it's not a utopian metropolis, but it's not as depicted that as either. I think he did a spectacular job of that. Because you don't actually, a lot of the time, if this makes sense, you don't realise where it's set. Yeah, and I think, especially considering that they didn't, I don't think they filmed any of it in actual Egypt, because I think the desert parts, the parts in Cairo are all filmed in Jordan, and the parts that are supposed to be London are set in Budapest, which you can kind of tell when someone gets off at Tottenham Court Road to go to Trafalgar (laughs) Square, which is about, you know, 40 minute walk or something like that. And then apparently the British Museum is now in Trafalgar Square and stuff like that. But yeah, and whenever you think of films set in Egypt or something like that, it's always ancient Egypt. You never see modern Cairo. You never see, because there's always that famous shot of what people think the pyramids look like. And it's these three pyramids in the middle of a vast desert and what the pyramids actually look like. And, you know, there's a KFC sort of two minutes walk from them. And it's just the entirety of Cairo encroaching on the pyramid site. And so to actually see that and see them on the streets, like the final battle takes place on the streets of Cairo while this giant kaiju fight is happening next to the pyramids themselves. I think he did a really good job, especially, like I say, considering that they didn't film a second of it in actual Egypt. He managed to represent it really well and actually show modern Egypt pretty well, yeah. Well, it has a sense that it's somewhere where all of this is happening in it, not because of it, not caused by the location. It is just a location for the action. In this day and age, that is quite an achievement. But another thing I think they both deserve real praise for is kind of a byproduct of the fact that everything has had to be shifted around after the pandemic and you know the production order of things has changed it's recently emerged that America was supposed to be inspired by No Way Home but the two films got swapped round so you know they would have to introduce her after she'd already appeared in something but this I mean a number of people have commented on the fact that it doesn't seem to have much connection to the wider Marvel Cinematic Universe which is yes. I think they've done a couple of times like you know Hellstrom is probably the best example but there's a few things like the first Ant-Man film feels quite disconnected from everything else it's not like they haven't got form in that but apparently it was originally supposed to tie in much more closely but because of things being moved round the things that have emerged are that they were supposed to be and I could actually see where this would have slotted into the script references to Gore the God Butcher who will be in Thor Love and Thunder but isn't yet because it's been moved so that had to go but also Echo who was introduced in Hawkeye and Kingo from the Eternals were originally part of the plot and it was simply that in both cases the actors weren't available oh right okay. because production of this had moved so that's the primary reason why they both got taken out I don't think you can tell that three major elements were taken out of it but I think having you know lost that context they've done an amazing job of making it just as valid in its own right well that's the tricky part especially with an original property is that you don't want it to just feel like an extension of something that's come before you want it to be able to stand on its own and if you just go hey here's this guy here's how he relates to everyone you've already seen so you know you're gonna like this guy because you like those guys right i like that they left because i think part of the thing with oscar isaac 
was that he only signed up if he wasn't immediately going to be contracted to do nine films or something like that. He wanted to do this thing, and if it was good, maybe they'll do something more later on. So I kind of like that it's almost entirely self-contained. Because there was talk for a while, I saw speculation during its run, that it might not even be in the same universe as the rest of the MCU. It might be in another part of the multiverse, and that at the end of the show, part of Multiverse of Madness, Moon Knight was going to get dragged into another universe or something like that. That was how sort of self-contained it was. But there are there are a couple of references. I mean, there's one reference to the Ancestral Plane, which Tawaret makes. There's one poster on a bus referring to the Global Repatriation Council yes, from Falcon yeah. and the Winter Soldier. I saw someone comment that there was an advert for Tiamat as a holiday destination. I don't know if that's actually real or if someone made that up, but that would imply that it took place after the Eternals. But I, yeah, I saw the same things as you about the possibility of Gwar the God Butcher being in it because, you know, gods and all that. And I was thinking, see if Christian Bale shows up and chops off Tawaret's head in Thor Love and Thunder. I'm never watching anything else again. I'd like, leave that hippo alone. She is a, <laughs> she's precious. But I did hear, like, apparently, like, in the London scenes, Dane Whitman might have been showing up at some point. Well, again, if that was ever on the cards, I doubt Kit Harrington would have been available if things had been moved around. Yeah, I do like that. I think as nice it would have been because there were all these people talking about WandaVision and, like, they were waiting for Doctor Strange to turn up and for Reed Richards and, you know, because obviously we got the fake Quicksilver and suddenly that opened a can of worms about who else are we going to get. So I kind of like that they don't sort of, everyone's waiting for the next high profile cameo or the, or the surprise appearance. And I think that's when you have to worry about the MCU sort of getting bigger than itself, where people are, they're not watching a show and enjoying it for what it is. They're waiting to see their favorite characters turn up. And as cool as it was to see the cameos in Multiverse of Madness, and I won't mention them just in case people still haven't seen it yet, but as cool as it was, I do like the self-containedness of these kind of shows. And I think if you're introducing particularly brand new characters, it's fine if it's sequels, it's fine if it's crossovers, if it's a brand new character who has to be sold to you, particularly someone as obscure as Moon Knight, let them do their thing and don't bring in other people for the sake of it. You know, I'm kind of glad. I don't know, you know, if the writers were intending it from the start, I'm sure, you know, I have faith in them that they would have done something right. But I honestly prefer that Moon Knight was just about Moon Knight because Mark and Steven are such interesting characters themselves. And if they do a later team up, if they do like a Midnight Suns or something like that later down the line and he shows up elsewhere, fantastic. But right now, just let him have his fun, let him do his thing and don't worry about trying to tie him into a, a universe that we've seen a hundred times at this point. Well, did you spot the more subtle hidden extra, which is that I'm not sure if they've been found in every episode yet, but there are hidden QR codes in the set yes, design I... and so on, which take you to... Now, Moon Knight is interesting because, I mean, there have been some Moon Knight comic series over the years, but he's mainly been... I think he started as a supporting character in Werewolf by Night, who is yet another character who I thought, oh yeah, as if they can do Werewolf by Night in the MCU, and they're doing a Halloween special on Disney+. Plus. But yep. over the years, he's mainly been, you know, showing up alongside people, like particularly the Punisher, who does that, you know, obviously Mark Spector is not scared of the Punisher, and there's that famous panel that does the rounds occasionally of him saying, High Castle, how's the dead family? <laughs> you can't imagine anyone else getting away with saying that. But it takes you to sort of key comics. You know, not all issues of Moon Knight comics featuring him. And I think that's a really interesting way of doing it as well. It's not just trying to sell the collected volumes of his own series on the back of it. It's saying, here's something interesting with this character. Yeah, and it's more sort of for the fans who want to discover it. Like, if you stick a QR code in anything, people are going to scan it. So you'd better know what you're doing. And the fact that, I mean, how long do you think they're going to have to keep those QR codes and those websites active for? Because 
obviously this is a series that's going to be around for a while. I remember thinking there are some old comedies from the early 2000s, things like How I Met Your Mother and that, where they always had fake websites and you'd go onto the internet and type it in and it would be a genuine website that someone has set up. And as far as I know, you know, those series are like nearly 20 years old. Those websites are still there. It does make you think like if you're going to put something in like that, people are going to discover it now. They're going to discover it in 10 years, 20 years. And it's just a way of getting more people to sort of read the actual source material. And not everyone's going to do that. You know, personally, I still haven't read a Marvel comic. I'm still I'm just enjoying the ride. And also, I kind of don't want to be spoiled too much about what happens in the comics in case it does happen on the screen. But I love that they're doing that. I love that they're also because this is something that Disney have been guilty of in the past. I love that they're actually giving the due to the comic book writers and artists because they haven't always done that. They've taken their ideas. They've taken their storylines. They've taken their properties and their IPs. And they've not always sent people back to them in the way that they really deserve. And then there's a whole talk about royalties and all that. So I love that they've put that in as if to say, you might not have heard of this character before. Here's where you can find out more about it. And I thought that was a superb thing. And I, I love those little kind of Easter eggs. You might not get away with it and everything. Like, I don't think there are likely to be QR codes on Nowhere, for example. But if you're going to have it in the London Museum, yeah, sure, you can stick a QR code in there. Why not? We should also just mention someone who, bizarrely, we've not actually touched on yet, which is Ethan Hawke. Obviously, it's, you know, aged up and made to look a bit wizened and haggard. But as well as performance being excellent, it's fairly strange to think of. Literally, the evening before the first episode went out, Dead Poet Society was on the TV. And you don't always think of him as being that fresh-faced teenage boy. Or, you know, maybe it'll push the slacker films he was in in the early 90s. But it's so bizarre seeing you totally inhabit this character who's even older than he looks. Yeah. Or at least I think we're supposed to think that. He plays it so well, but apparently he brought a lot to the production in terms of Oscar Isaac recommended him and he accepted it sight unseen and he didn't want to see the scripts before he spoke to the director without him reading it and thinking, ah, here's my take on the character. And he also encouraged, apparently they had informal cast and crew brunches every Sunday, which everyone involved says really, really helped the production because they all knew what each other was doing and thinking. And that's borne out by, supposedly, the reshoots and pickups only took four days, which apparently is like almost unheard of. Mentioning Multiverse Madness, we're reshooting that right up until, I think, a couple of weeks before it went out. But this was wrapped almost straight away. Yeah, and the same with No Way Home as well. I mean, they were reshooting that and rewriting it and they were doing test screenings and people were saying, oh, it doesn't quite all make sense. We need to do this. It's always the same with these kind of things where they say the more reshoots something needs, the more of a mess it is and the worse the film's going to be. And that's not always true because like Rogue One, the Star Wars spin-off film, the best scene in that where Darth Vader massacres a bunch of rebels was added in reshoots. So that reshoots are not always a bad thing. But yeah, if you can get it done in the main shoot and if everyone knows what they're doing, then that can be hugely beneficial. And yeah, it sounds like Ethan Hawke was... It's always great when you see someone actually take a vested interest because some people, you hear these stories about actors signing up to superhero films and they're only they're just doing it for the money and they don't really care about the actual character or anything like that. But then you get these people that actually, yeah, they dedicate themselves to it. They want to make sure they do a good thing. They don't take over it. They respect the material. They learn about it. They see what they can bring to it without taking over it. And yeah, I thought Ethan Hawke was superb in this. And you're right, because especially in the sort of hospital scene where he's playing this kind of doctor, where he is, as Stephen says, he, he goes a bit Ned Flanders. He does kind of have this kind of sort of wizened old professor look. I genuinely don't know how actually how old he was, but he did the character really well. Like when Harold resurrects Amit in the final episode, he's been going all along about, like I say, doing this sort of minority report thing of judging people based on any future sins they may commit. And when he resurrects Amit and she says, I'm going to sort of judge you based on sins you haven't committed yet. And he says, yeah, I'm completely on board with that. I stand 
stand by. You know, he doesn't back away from the mission that he set out on. He doesn't see what he's done and then go, actually, no, I'm going to save myself. He's fully prepared to sacrifice himself for the greater good and for his God. And then she goes, actually, no, you're going to do my killing for me. And it's like, yeah, sure. Okay. But yeah, I thought he was great. And he's kind of been, because everyone's been talking about, I mean, us ourselves have been talking about Oscar Isaac and about Maya Kalamawi. I think I pronounced that right. And yeah, he's not really been getting much of the praise, despite the fact that he is superb in this. I mean, I can't think of a single bad performance apart from possibly Stephen's accent. No, I'm kidding. It's always great to see a star that goes to a superhero or a Marvel property and actually, you know, commits to it. Speaking of the gods, the scene where they bring in, they have this big meeting of the gods and they bring in their avatars from all over the world who just seem to be random people that just seem to be plucked out of their lives. There's a Northern Irish guy. There's a guy just walks in in like a work outfit or something like that. And I'm thinking if they've just been called away from their homes, like what happens if they're getting called to the pyramid while they're in the middle of something important? What happens if they get called and it's like, and here comes Anubis's avatar and it's a guy who's got his trousers around his ankles because it's like, sorry, I was in the middle of something there. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that there's a, a big part of episode five when we see Mark's backstory. They always seem to do this in the Marvel Disney Plus shows. Like WandaVision did this, Falcon and the Winter Soldier did it, and now Moon Knight's done it as well, which is that the second last episode is always the big exposition episode. It's always the big backstory where you find out all the answers to all the questions or, well, most of the questions so that they can have all the action in the finale. In the second last episode of this, we find out about Mark's upbringing. We find out he had an abusive mother because she held him responsible for the death of his brother. And we also find out that he's Jewish. And I think, is this the first time we've seen a Jewish hero in the MCU? He goes to his mother Shiva. We see him wearing a yarmulke in the street outside his house. And it was just, it was interesting because I think that's, like I say, it's the first time we've seen a Jewish hero in the MCU. And, you know, I can't really comment too much on how well it was represented. I've seen some people say that the representation was done really well. I've seen some people say sort of more mixed or negative response because apparently in the comics, his dad is a rabbi. I don't think he's meant to be in this. I certainly didn't see anything to suggest that he was. It was just interesting to see because obviously we're getting our first Muslim hero with Miss Marvel and it's just it's good to see more representation like that. It doesn't seem to be as integral to his character as something like Matt Murdock's Catholicism is. You know, it's it's part of his upbringing but it doesn't seem to influence or motivate his life day to day. But yeah, that was just that was something that I hadn't seen before and I thought that was good to see. I think we have to give a special shout out to F. Murray Abraham as the voice of Khonshu as well because that was something that, again, if you're the voice of an Egyptian god, there's so many different ways to play that and it could come across as camp, it could come across as over the top but I think F. Murray Abraham, he has one of those voices that's just perfect for this sort of thing. If anyone's seen him in Mythic Quest, his character in that, he's brilliant in that but it does mean that after seeing the first episode, anytime I am at work and someone gives me a big project to do, all I can hear now is F. Murray Abraham's voice in my head going Oh no, the idiot's in charge! <laughs> And it's just, it's kind of ruined it for me. But I really hope that we get a season two because this was one of those shows that, depending on how you look at it, it could have been a movie and maybe we would have got more sort of big budget fight scenes because I think they did really well with the budget that they had, but you could still tell in places that they wanted to have more Moon Knight than they maybe did. But also it's the sort of thing that I could see run and run. You know, there's just, when you've got basically two protagonists who don't really acknowledge each other's existence until halfway through and then people like Layla, we saw the name in Mark's phone Deschamps, which is another character from Moon Knight as far as I'm aware. It just seems like there's so much more we could do with this universe, with these Egyptian gods, and I would love to see a season two. It hasn't been confirmed yet, but they originally changed the advertising for it from the series finale to the season finale before episode six went out. So that bodes well for us getting more Moon Knight. Whether or not we see it as a movie, whether or not we see Mark and Steven show up in something else before that, I'm not entirely sure where, but I just 
I want to see more Moon Knight. I love this show. I love this character. I loved how well, as far as I can tell, again, I'm not an expert on these things, but it seems like they did dissociative identity disorder. They gave it the respect that it deserves. It wasn't done for laughs. It wasn't used to mock the character or anything like that. It's just part of who he is and how he copes with that. Well, apparently they had a very respected academic on board to check over the script and make sure they were doing it in a reasonable and fair way. And that really does, you know, it's not very often people go to that length for what in a sense is representation really yeah in the same way that they showed sort of PTSD and Jessica Jones it's great to see them actually sort of deal with real life issues in a way that doesn't come across like it's not a gimmick it's not all he is like Mark and Stephen are two completely different characters but the fact that he has DID it doesn't define who he is and it's how he deals with that and sort of still is a hero I thought it was really well done one final thought I have which is my other favourite quote from the show which is kill the hippo steal the boat which to me should be the new save the cheerleader save the world like I want to see people graffitiing that on walls all over the world no context whatsoever for well for once that brings me straight into my closing question which is David if you could summon the suit bearing the power of an ancient Egyptian god what would you use it for I mean I'd probably choose the god of the sun because that way I could actually live in Scotland and actually get a tan I actually don't have anything to say in response to that (laughs) David thank you and excelsior thanks very much Tim If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details on my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.